This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. What does it take for women to land the corporate CEO role? That's what we're talking about today. I had the distinct pleasure of attending a conference called Lead With Her, Empowered Voices. This was a conference sponsored by Duke Corporate Education, and it was the brainchild of Sharm Lachetti, the CEO of Duke Corporate Education. There were a number of global women CEOs and executive leaders who were speakers and who were present at the meeting. I'm just going to name a few of them. Alexandra Altinger, CEO of J.O. Hambra EUKA, Nolitha Fakud, Chair of Anglo-Americans Management Board in South Africa, Lillian Barnard, CEO, Microsoft South Africa, Talib Makgala, Executive of Implants, and this is an organization that focuses on mining and creating opportunities for women in mining, Cindy Mabosa Koyana, Chair of AWCA Investment Holdings, Dame Inga Beale, the former first woman CEO of Lloyd's of London, Stephanie Werner Dietz, Executive Vice President of Arcella Mittal, and the keynote speaker, the Honorable Julia Gillard, who is the former and first and only woman Prime Minister of Australia. There were also a number of other women executives in attendance, as well as many people who were chief learning officers, chief people officers, chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, and many other talent and development professionals who were present. I'd like to start with some lessons from Dame Inga Beale, who was the first woman CEO of Lloyd's of London. And I'd like to share something about her experiences. And Lloyd's of London is in the insurance and insurance market, and they have developed a very diverse and broad and large market of insurance entities. Dame Inga is the person who claimed that it was really diversity targets that were responsible and necessary for her success and progression forward. And I'll say more about that. She spoke on the subject of how to win when you are the only woman in the room. And that was certainly her experience for a lot of her career. Dame Inga Beale grew up in a small town in the UK, and from the beginning, she always had difficulties feeling and being different. In her family, she was a middle child, the only one with dark hair. Her siblings all had blonde hair. They hung out together, and they made her believe that she had really been adopted, which really wasn't the case. So she grew up feeling a little bit different and spent a number of years really trying to fit in in her business career with the guys who were in the industries where she operated. She says that feeling different truly impacts your productivity and engagement and not necessarily for the better. 
She ultimately moved to London. She wanted to be in the big city and see what opportunities were there, and she landed a job in financial services. She was on a team of 35 people, and she was the only woman on the team. Her only outlet was her rugby play. She was on a rugby team, and she played games after work and during her off time, and that was her one way of relieving some degree of stress. In her role, being the only woman, again, hearkening back to childhood and this desire to fit in, she found herself taking on male behaviors and claiming basically that she could drink as much as they did at the pubs. And so that was a large part of her early life. Now, one day when she got to work, she found that her desk and her whole work area had been covered by photographs of scantily clad women. And this was so traumatizing to her that she left work that day and she did not return for more than a year. She went on a worldwide tour. And on her worldwide tour, one of her stops was in Sydney, Australia. And what she saw in Sydney, she saw a woman who was the head of the BBC in Australia. She didn't even know women could hold those kinds of positions. And this particular woman wore pantsuits to work, which certainly was not the accepted norm in London at the time. So later on, when she got back to London, after a brief stint in her original job there, the one that she left because of the near nude photographs left in her work area, she ended up in a job in the insurance world at that point. And in that job, the man who was her leader, he had responsibility to hire women into the industry. And his performance was evaluated on his success in doing so. He had, in other words, diversity targets. So he wanted to promote Inga. And Inga did not want to be promoted, and she was afraid, and she was fearful. So he called in all kinds of people to help to get Inga promoted, and ultimately, she did accept the job, and she also took an assertiveness class so that she could be ready and able to step out as she needed to in this role. And what was preventing her was fear. It wasn't that she lacked talent because she did not lack talent. She ultimately went on to work not only in the UK, she worked in the US, she worked in France, she worked in Germany. And then at some point, she took a job as CEO of a failing Swiss company. She was 43 years old at that time. This was a huge turnaround job. The company was failing, not doing well at all. And most men would not take the opportunity. They wouldn't look at it at all. They felt they had too much to lose. Well, she ended up turning that company around and doubled its market cap as a result of all the work that she did. So when she finished her work in Switzerland, she moved back to London and she was running one of the Lloyd's companies. So she was, if you will, a CEO of one of the smaller businesses under the Lloyd's umbrella. And while she was doing that, she became a part of a women's affinity group of other CEOs and they were called the Insurance Supper Club. One day at a breakfast meeting, they were talking about the fact that Lloyd's of London was looking for a new CEO, and they were checking with one another. They were the big CEOs in the town, and none of them had been approached 
or asked for any recommendations of who might be an appropriate person. So they assumed that since none of them had been asked to provide recommendations, that probably no women were being considered. So they hatched a plan. They decided that they would have Inga and another one of their members to contact the chairman of the board of Lloyd's and to have a meeting with him. So they went in, they had the meeting, they expressed their concerns that no women were being considered for the position. Long story short, Inga was one of, I think, two women who were asked to apply for the job. And she, as she was going through the interview, she thought to herself, oh, this is probably just some token exercise because we brought this issue up. She really didn't think she had a chance of being selected. However, she ended up being selected as the CEO of Lloyd's of London, and she was the first woman to be selected in this role after 300, more than 325 years of male leadership. So from her story, there are a few things that I extracted that I wanted to bring out and share with you. Number one, believe in yourself. And after she came back from Australia, she determined she was going to do that. Number two, go out, see a broader view, whether that's internationally, outside of your country, outside of your industry, but somehow get outside of your normal day-to-day operations so that you can get inspired by what others are doing and what others are accomplishing elsewhere. Number three, take advantage of opportunities like the diversity targets that her boss had. There will be times when your organization incentivizing people to really move in some new directions. Should that happen to come to your doorstep and you can benefit? Great. Take advantage of it. Number four, continue to learn and to grow and to educate yourself. And in Inga's case, her assertiveness course was part of her own personal development and growth. Number five, chip away at the glass ceiling to the top. There's always that glass ceiling. You can see your way to the top, but you can't always get through that glass ceiling. So chip away at it. And six, get rid of the fear that seals the crack in the glass ceiling that you're making. So chip away at that fear as she had to do to take that first big promotion. Number seven, avoid the trap of hiring people just like you. It may feel more comfortable to hire people just like you. However, what is more beneficial is to hire diverse people with complementary skills to your own. Number eight, take the risky jobs that men won't touch. In their cases, they often think they have a lot to lose. As a woman climbing your way up, you have zero to lose. Even though as a woman, you're under more scrutiny and any failure is going to be dealt with with a bit more harshness than with the male executive. The reality is women such as Inga have taken these tough jobs like the Swiss company, the turnaround, and have done wonders with them. And this is what makes a name for yourself as being that success person that you are. Number nine, create affinity groups with other women to provide support and to advance women's interest. One of the things that Inga said is that the men in Switzerland, they got that kind of camaraderie because they all had been in the army together and that's how they built it. So women sometimes have to come up with other ways to get these things done. I also would like to share with you a few nuggets from Honorable Julia Gillard, who was the first and only woman prime minister in Australia. And in her case, she was dealing with 
the issue of misogyny. And misogyny is the intense dislike of, contempt for, and ingrained prejudice against women. It is a particularly onerous form of sexism that's used to keep women at a lower social status than men and to main patriarchy. Typically, when people are practicing misogyny, they're paying attention to a woman's appearance, her sexual activities and behaviors, how sweet she is and how submissive she is. So this indeed can be a problem. Julia Gillard was very famous for a speech that she gave in Parliament where she was calling out and dressing down a male colleague of the opposition party who was involved in very egregious misogynistic behavior. And she says this this whole misogyny issue is like a cancer in organizations today. Some of the things she talked about, she says that structures and stereotypes are in large part what hold women back. And she says gender equality is better for men too, because the stereotypes also keep men in very circumscribed roles. And there's some research she cited where men who are caretakers at home and who are watching the children are generally not respected by either men or women. And there are also certain career fields that a man not get a lot of support for if he chose to go into that field. She also indicated that we need men as allies to promote gender equality. And she says men are more likely to be believed when they call out a gender problem, perhaps because people don't see them as really having such a dog in the fight. It's not for personal interest that they're necessarily doing it or for personal gain. And I see a parallel to the civil rights movement in the United States. It was necessary to have white allies because they held the power positions. And again, they could speak to their white colleagues and have the credibility to do so. So the civil rights movement would not have had the gains that it ended up having without having white allies. And women need male allies in the gender equality movement as well. She went on to say that it's the collective voices that have more power. So it's important to collect with other women and to collect with men as well. An issue was brought up that some men are wanting to have an International Men's Day as well. And one of the things that Julia Gillard said about this is that there's always going to be some kind of a backwash that occurs when there's forward progress. Now, what I say about it is a little bit different. I say that men may also need some affinity groups because the whole workplace has changed post-COVID. And as gender roles change, it affects both genders in any case. And men may need their specific groups to figure out their roles as allies. I have a client where the white males got together, created an affinity group so they could figure out how to leverage their position and power to promote diversity in their organizations and to partner with diverse colleagues in order to make a difference in workplaces. So in my opinion, there is room for various different constituency groups to have their own affinity group to include men, to include white men. Julia Gillard also said that it's important to use data to better explain and illustrate the issues that are going on when it comes down to gender. 
and to gain the support of others. Also, if you have data, you can establish and enable benchmarking because you'll look at the data and the progress this year and you'll look at it next year and see to what extent you've moved the needle. She says there's still an issue of women's unpaid work, meaning all the work in the household. Women still carry the brunt of it, even during COVID, when both spouses were at home and the woman was the higher breadwinner or income earner, she still had the vast bulk of the non-paid work of childcare, homeschooling, and everything else that was going on in the home. Also, the cost of childcare arrangements is a huge issue that impacts especially women in the workplace. And companies that want to be best places to work really need to think about this and unpack the possibilities of how they can make a difference and make this better. So what Julia Gillard also said is that it's time to start wargaming now, and I call it scenario planning. In other words, you're wanting to prepare for your future. You've been forewarned and forearmed by women who've gone ahead of you, who have already been in the CEO chair, so you can start making your plans for how you're going to lead yourself and others forward in the future. So in the words of Brenda, who was one of the Duke Corporate University moderators, she said, when God made woman, he was showing off. So stand up and stand out. So I'd like to close this segment today with a reading from the book of Judges from the fourth chapter, and I'll be reading verses eight through 10. And before I read this, let me mention that Deborah was a prophetess. She was the wife of Lapidoth. She was a judge in Israel, and it was at a time when some enemies were coming against Israel, and Israel was afraid of the battle. And Israel for a while at this point had been kind of disobedient, if you will, to God. So in her role as prophetess, she got information, guidance, and instruction from God that said for her to call Barak, and Barak was to deploy a number of troops and to go to Mount Tabor. And when she assembled him and told him about this, he was afraid. He did not want to go. And here's what he said in Judges 4th chapter, starting with verse 8. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. And if you don't know the rest of the story, Israel won that battle, and another woman, Jael, she's the one that took out the commander of the enemy army with a tent peg in her tent, and that was Sisera, the general of the opposing army. So two women got the glory for this difficult task that the man didn't want to do, even though God called the man to do the work, he insisted that Deborah go with him. So it's just further proof, women out there, that there are tough jobs to do, and you are more than capable and ready for the challenge. So rock on. See you next time. 
Terrence Chapman is the president and CEO of Victoria's Family, an organization committed to family discipleship and transformation. Today, he's here to talk about a special celebration event taking place on the 19th of April. Terrence, tell us all about it. So good to be here. You know, do you think the family is in crisis? Well, on April the 19th, at the World of Coca-Cola here in Atlanta, Georgia, we're offering a very distinct experience, dinner and gala. We're gonna have great speakers, great entertainment, great celebrities will be there, but more importantly, we'll be casting the vision around family transformation and what it could look like in your home. Join us April 19th at the World of Coca-Cola here in Atlanta, Georgia. And what's great, Terrence, about what you're saying, this is for all of us, those of us in business, those of us in pastoral leadership, those of us in family leadership, you want all of us there. All of those who have a family or part of a family, you're invited. All right. So give us the website information where people can go to sign up. Go to victoriousfamily.org slash take the next step. Excellent. See you there. See you there. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.